had a couple of things kind of going sideways earlier and caused me to forget to put on my mic. That's the first time I've done that in 10 years. Forgot to put on my mic. So it was the first time for everything, right? I've almost forgotten many times, but this is the first time I've actually forgot. All right. Well, we're continuing in our series on James, and uh, the series I've called Faith Renovation, and I'm talking about faith that works. And what I was expecting to do was teach in James chapter 2, 14 through to the end of the chapter, 14 to 26. And uh, it's obviously a big text, and as I got into it, I realized uh, that that was not going to happen. And so we are going to do 14 to 19. And, um, but don't worry, it's still going to be enough. And the question is quite simple. Are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? Is trusting in the finished work of Jesus what saves us? Or will our works in our life have to measure up in order to be saved? So Paul says... In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he says it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. Seems clear enough. However, as we go through James, James says in 2, 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That also seems clear enough. So is there a confrontation between Paul and James? Because if there is a confrontation between what Paul is teaching and what James is teaching, then we don't know what the gospel is. We don't know what saves us for sure. Not only are Paul and James here possibly saying different things about the gospel, but they're apparently saying opposite things about the gospel. And if they're making mutually exclusive claims about the gospel, then we as Christians either have to abandon any ability to know for sure what the gospel is, or we have to abandon the integrity of the word of God, discrediting either James or discrediting Paul and saying we can't listen to them. And obviously, either of those options would be bad. And neither of those things have happened in the last 2,000 years, and so that's probably not how we should read these texts. But because that would be so bad to Christianity if Paul and James were actually in conflict, it's perhaps one of the reasons that critics of the gospel and critics of biblical theology want to wedge a conflict between Paul and James based on how they've written their letters. But there isn't really a conflict. And I'm not really concerned about what critics have to say about the scripture. They can waste their life attacking it as they please. In fact, I kind of hope that they do waste their life attacking it as they please because after years and years of diligent study, Often they come to Christ, and I have a new brother or sister, uh, if they study the Bible that closely. But I am concerned with what Paul and James are concerned with, which is the integrity of the gospel. I'm concerned with not misleading nor allowing anyone to be misled by counterfeit gospels or incomplete gospels, or distorted gospels, or contaminated gospels. That's what James is concerned about. That's what Paul is concerned about. That's what I'm concerned about. Here are their concerns. The Apostle James, as you read him, for the most part, is mainly concerned that people will think that simply a correct intellectual knowledge of God and knowing the right answers will save them. 
And the error that he's concerned about is that saving faith produces no works. And people believe that. The Apostle Paul's concern, for the most part, not entirely, but mainly, is concerned that people will think they are being saved or approved by God because of their own efforts, specifically their efforts at law-keeping. The error he's concerned about is that saving faith is a product of our work. And so James and Paul are not so much facing each other in conflict, but standing back-to-back facing different opponents of the gospel. And they don't want either opponent to be victorious. They have a complete gospel in view. And we sometimes pigeonhole them by oversimplifying their whole argument or exaggerating one single point of it. But as we're going to see here, we'll find that James and Paul are actually in perfect agreement on the gospel. And from both of them teaching, we can be fully aware of and perfectly knowledgeable of the complete gospel. It's important that Scripture not contradict Scripture. If we're reading it wrong, we get ourselves tied into knots and confusion. And obviously, it's important that we have the whole gospel. If we only have part of it, then we need to fix that too. And so Faith Inspector James has got his hammer out. He's tapping the joists again. He's poking at the rafters of this young church. And he is determining that there is some problems in the foundation, in their understanding of how the gospel works and how some people are thinking that they are saved when they're actually not. And what is at stake here is the most important question. What kind of faith saves us? Paul and James both agree that faith is what saves us. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. That's the right answer. But they also agree there's more than one kind of faith and more than one gospel being taught. And only genuine gospel and genuine faith are effective at salvation. Paul says in Galatians, as we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul says there are other gospels that are getting bandied about out there. Don't let anybody teach you a counterfeit gospel, a contrary gospel. And James, for his part, he opens up his argument in 2.14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? (laughs) In other words, there's different kinds of faith. And James is wondering if that kind of faith is actually saving faith. There are counterfeit gospels, and there are kinds of faith that don't save. So what about us? Are we skating by in life with an easy believism, an incomplete gospel, a counterfeit faith? That we just know the right things about God, and if we project the right attitudes with our words, then we can convince ourselves, and hopefully convince God, that our faith is real. Or should we... As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Well, here we are with faith inspector James testing our faith. And that's what this end of chapter 2 is about. And so I ask as I pray and we look at 2, 14 to 19, that we uh, open our hearts to the Holy Spirit and test our faith and test if we understand the gospel and what James is telling us about it. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray now, especially for your Holy Spirit, both in my words and me as I preach, but also in each of us as we listen. And I pray that if there be any uh, uncertainty or any confusion 
on my part that it would be clarified by your Holy Spirit as people hear it. And uh, Father, that, uh, yeah, we would just love your word, love your instruction, and take it to heart because it is asking us this question this morning that is the most important question of our lives. What faith is it that truly saves? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's read what James has to say. James 2, 14 to 19. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James's argument opens pretty simply. It isn't complicated. It's very straightforward. It's on a subject, though, that is fairly terrifying because it has to do with our eternal salvation. So as simple as it might be, we're going to hope that he elaborates for our benefit, and he does. But the basic argument itself is quite simple. And it's this part of it here. What good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? He gives us an example, and he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's simple. It's a very simple argument. He starts in a rhetorical style. What good is it? It's a rhetorical question. Assumes the reader knows the answer coming. The answer is going to be, it's not good at all. What good is it? It's no good if you have faith but not works. If someone says they have faith, James here in the ESV, it says says, in your translation, it might say claims. If someone claims they have faith. And so in his argument, the situation that James is establishing here is that it's a conversation. A person claims they're speaking. He says that they have faith. And we can imagine that James is hearing this person and his skepticism is already alerted. The person claims to have faith, but James knows that there's no works evident in their life, and so James is not going to simply accept that they actually have genuine faith. He's not going to accept that whatever this gentleman is talking about and whatever he's talking about in faith is the same thing. You know, this guy's saying, you believe in God, you have faith, I do too, I have faith. And James is like, "Mm -hmm, I'm not so sure. I don't see any evidence of it in your life. What kind of faith is it that you think you have? Define the word faith for me. You can imagine James saying. And as good Canadians, I know I'm already making some of you uncomfortable and possibly offended. Because it's just rude. How dare James question another person's faith? They say they have faith. Like, it's not on Like, we can't judge them and can't judge their faith. James is just being impolite. How dare he immediately be skeptical of someone's faith? Well, as polite Canadians, we need to get over it. We need to be graciously skeptical when people claim to be brothers or sisters, but they're acting like pagans, or they're acting like sinners. They can say, they can claim all the faith they want to claim, but James is skeptical. And he says, if that's what you mean by faith, he asks the important question, can that faith save him? So now he's talking, brothers and sisters, to the collected audience. He's saying, imagine I'm having this conversation. This guy has faith. He has no works. Can that faith save him? Again, rhetorical question, no. 
That faith is not the faith that saves. What is the faith that saves? That's the most important question. And we have to ask it that way because James understands that there are forms of faith and things that people will call faith that do not save. A lot of people today, you will hear it in very contemporary terms, is you just got to have faith. You know, just faith. Just have faith. As long as you have faith, you know, then you'll get through. And faith is what's important. And it doesn't really matter what you have faith in as long as you have faith. You can have faith in this or faith in that. And it really comes across as just faith in faith itself. You just got to have faith. Just a lot of faith, whatever faith is. And if you have faith, then you're okay. And everybody accepts that you're a person of faith. And you're in a community of faith. And you maybe support faith-based organizations. What does faith mean in contemporary terms? Well, James wants to get at that. And James gives an easy example that describes the kinds of things that faith needs in order to be counted as genuine. James understands there's forms of faith that we call faith that don't save, and he gives an easy example for a way to test faith and just see and describe the kinds of work that he has in mind. He says if one believer sees another believer, he's not even talking about random strangers here. He's saying if a brother or sister sees a brother or a sister in need. He's talking about other believers. He's not even talking about people far from us. And they see them hungry or cold and they don't give them what they need to survive, then what good is that? James's example, you understand here, is actually accomplishing two purposes. It's describing the type of work that he's expecting faith to produce. It's also an analogy of useless faith. Works of compassion or works of love are the types of works he expects to see But the example that he gives is an analogy of faith that doesn't save. And it means it this way. He makes it an analogy when he says, so also your faith essentially is as equally useless to you as the Christian brother or sister's prayer is to the person who needs something. Like like you see how useless the kind words that are given to the person who needs food, needs clothing, and you just say nice words to them, that is useless. Your faith, if it's not accompanied by works, is as useless to you as kind words are to a person in need. So it's both the kind of works James expects to see, and it's an analogy of how useless the faith is. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works will not save you any more than nice words will feed or clothe a person. Empty words don't save a person from their physical need, and empty faith won't save you and your spiritual need. This is not a complicated argument. It's a simple statement. It's a simple example. Depending what sort of faith you claim to have, this simple argument might be assuring or it might be terrifying, but it's certainly not complicated. Faith cannot be by itself. Faith is the instrument of salvation, but if it is the kind of faith that has nothing that comes along with it, namely works of compassion, then it is a dead faith. It's dead, James says. And then James anticipates an argument, and he uses the argument that he anticipates to clarify the kind of faith that can't save. And here's his anticipation in verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But someone will say, this is just another rhetorical device in communication. James uses it. Paul uses it. You remember in Romans when Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. So they're 
They're using a rhetorical argument here to make their point. James anticipates the argument of his opponent, and he addresses it directly as though he had already made it himself. Now, here's the thing. This rhetorical sentence can be a little bit hard to follow because, first of all, Greek has no punctuation marks. And the second punctuation mark that we've inserted as a quotation may be better placed at the end of verse 18 or possibly even at the end of verse 19. All three places that you put the end quotation work equally well. Secondly, not only does Greek not have any punctuation marks, and we're not sure where to put them, but B, James is now quoting someone who's quoting someone else. In other words, let me say what you are going to say that I'm going to say. It's a bit convoluted, but we can simplify it. So let me try by putting the quotation mark at the end of verse 18. If you put the quotation mark at the end of verse 18, then James is writing it this way. Another Christian, someone, is going to answer you. Full quote now. You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the whole sentence. And so what's being pictured here is a couple of Christians that are having this debate in the church. They're having this conversation in front of James. And the first Christian has already established his argument that James opened with. The first Christian has already said, I have faith and faith is all I need. You can go on and on about works and a whole bunch of other things, but I've got faith and I heard what Paul said and faith is all I need. I don't need anything else. So forget this works business. The second Christian, James identifies as someone, will say to that argument, You can try and show me, or you can try and prove to me your faith separated or apart from your works, but I will prove my faith by my works. In other words, you say you have faith, but how do you prove it apart from your works? I will show you, I will prove my faith by my works. Claiming to have faith without evidence by proven works is empty intellectualism. And then James really drives the nail home here. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So let me just yank the rug out from underneath your argument about faith. If you think faith is merely believing that God is, even knowing accurately who God is, and that you acknowledge God, you know him, you know everything about him and what he's about, yeah, even the demons know that, and they're terrified. And what you don't see here, because you're not a first century Jewish person, is the rhetorical and theological genius that's operating. And here's why. Because the first part of what James says is actually taken from Deuteronomy 6.4, and it forms the first half of what is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the Shema is a short prayer that every Jewish person said twice a day, every day, and had been doing for probably at least 500 years, maybe even up to 1,000 years. So imagine a whole nation repeating the same prayer twice a day for five centuries, maybe 10 centuries. That is some deeply ingrained belief. Like that is some kind of faith. And James, by opening with the first half of the Shema, basically says, and remember, this young church is mostly Jewish. We established that in the first sermon. 
you know, the, the word came to Jerusalem first, and the very, very young church that James is writing to are mostly Jewish people. And James says, I understand the kind of faith you have. I know the faith you're talking about. You say it twice a day. You've been saying it since you learned how to talk. You believe God is one. You adhere to the Shema. Is that what you're talking about? Is that the kind of faith that you have? Well, good for you. You know who else believes that first part of the Shema? The demons believe that. And they are terrified in that belief. So James hooks his argument right into the counterfeit faith this early Jewish church has stumbled into. It's not trusting the gospel. It's trusting in their own faith. It's faith in faith itself. It's just to stay faithful to the tradition, to stay faithful as a people of faith, to the acknowledgement that God is who he is. But what does the first half of the Shema lock? What's it missing? And why are the demons terrified? James doesn't even need to finish his argument for the audience that he has because they already know it. They've been praying it twice a day. The Shema concludes or it continues in the next verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Oops. That's why the demons tremble. That's why your intellectual faith without works is useless. And James has already covered this territory just a few verses higher in chapter 2. Remember, he's already led his readers to the royal law, the great commandment, which is this. But here, later on in the chapter, he just kind of casually calls back to it without even saying the second half of the Shema. By referring to what they said twice a day since they were able to talk, he basically disarms their argument so completely that it doesn't even have to say the obvious. That it's like, yeah, you acknowledge God is one, but what I'm talking about is are you loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might? That's a different thing. In fact, I think he doesn't say it, and this is just my pure speculation. I think he doesn't say it, because as I read this text and kind of get into the tension of this conversation, I think if James actually spelled it out for them, it could weaken the effect of his argument and frustrate or anger his listeners if he spells out what he just led them into understanding. Have you ever had like a tough conversation with one of your kids or maybe your spouse, and you're, you're... trying to engage with them very gently, but you've, you've lovingly led them to a place where you know the light bulb has gone on and they've just realized their mistake. And at that point, you could say, and therefore you can see how obviously, you know, you're wrong. But if you're wise, you do not say that. <laughs> because you know you've led them there and they've realized it and you just, the stronger argument is just to walk away at that point and let them digest what they've just discovered. And I think that's, I'm speculating, but I think that's what James is doing here. He's brilliant. By introducing the Shema and saying the demons believe that too, he knows his audience is going to finish it in their head. And he knows what he just led them into. And so he doesn't even have to, he doesn't even have to finish the argument because he's already got them there and he does not want to get them angry. The demons tremble because they know God's perfectly they know God perfectly well, but they do not love him. 
And by comparing to the demons, if your faith is only the intellectual position of the first half of the Shema, and it doesn't produce love for God that occupies your entire being, your emotions, your intellect, and your actions, your might, then your faith won't save you any more than the demons are saved. He's led them right there. He doesn't need to say it. And I can imagine that James had a pretty steady diet of his half-brother's teaching and preaching, and in retrospect, I'm sure all of the things that Jesus said would have really stuck with James after he saw Jesus resurrected. And here's something Jesus said, Matthew 7:18: "A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. I think James remembered that teaching. That it's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom, but the one who has works, the one who does the will of God. Jesus also said to his disciples in his prayer, specifically for them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, I'm sorry, I got that inserted in the wrong spot there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, that's the second half of the Shema. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And so you will do his commandments if you love him. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 5, 9, and being made perfect, he became the source, that's Jesus, of eternal salvation to who? All who have faith in him? No, all who obey him. That's who he's the source of salvation to. The faith that saves results in obedience, results in works. And if we want to come back to Paul, even the way Paul concludes the most famous articulation of salvation by faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, this is every Calvinist's favorite verse. He says, for we are, create, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Right? He just said you're saved by faith alone and not by works, that no man should boast. And in the very next verse, Paul says, because we were created for good works, which God prepared, that we should walk in them, we should actually do them. You see, there is no disagreement Paul says that faith is not a result of works, but works are a result of faith. And James has no argument to disagree with that. James is making this very same argument. Paul and James are in perfect agreement. Faith produces works. The gospel is consistent, and the gospel is whole, and scripture is consistent, and scripture is whole. But let me use James's rhetorical device here myself. Someone, I know some of you out there might even be thinking this, but what about the thief on the cross? He didn't do anything. He was literally nailed to a cross when he came to faith. He did nothing out of his faith. He had no works. Exactly. Both Paul and James share the gospel truth that faith is the instrument of our salvation and the instrument of our good works. Jesus knew the thief on the cross had the kind of genuine faith that would produce works. He simply never had the opportunity to produce them. It's not our works that save us, but it is faith that produces works that is proven genuine and saves us. 
When we put our trust in Jesus, when we believe in the gospel and fully bring it into our hearts, it produces love, love for God and love for others. And you cannot come away from an encounter with the gospel unchanged without it producing works in you. And this is the test that Paul told the Corinthians to prove their faith by, that they would not fail the test. Trusting God produces meaningful change in our choices and in our behaviors. In other words, Christians live differently because trusting God and his word changes how we calculate everything. After you understand the gospel and begin applying to your life, it changes all the calculations. It changes how we calculate the value of a human life. So that changes our position on certain social issues. It changes how we calculate our own financial security. So that affects how generous we are. It changes how we evaluate the importance of winning this particular argument over preserving the unity of a relationship and esteeming and honoring the person that we're arguing with. It changes how we view our spouse. It changes what our marriage is for. It alters our calculation of risk and the real value of things in comparison to people. And it's all to our good and God's glory that these changes take place. The gospel is that God, through... Trusting in Jesus makes all of these changes possible. We really are given new hearts, and we really are made new creations, and we really are equipped to take captive every thought and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which produces works of love. And James's whole point is to this young church, if we are not seeing that change, or we are not participating in that gospel transformation, then our faith is rightly suspect. Maybe we do not have saving faith. Maybe we just believe what our parents told us or what Pastor Paul said. Maybe we just like the community of people that we're in. Maybe we just acknowledge that there is a God, but we don't want to submit to him and his righteousness. And James is afraid he isn't seeing these differences in the behavior of his Christians, brothers, and sisters. And I'm not saying that Christians behave perfectly all the time. I'm not saying that we are not going to lapse into following our flesh. But as a whole, as James looks at the whole church and James looks at all these Christians, he's seen in some quarters a disturbing trend that there are people who are claiming to have faith, but they are not acting like they have faith. And that can happen. The Christian is meant to be different. And thankfully and gloriously and amazingly and miraculously, the Christian is different On the whole, what James had hoped to see in the young church and hopes to see in the Christian world and in the kingdom, we can actually see. If we look or the world looks at the church as a whole, at Christianity as a whole, we do see that the gospel changes lives. We do see that it statistically even makes a difference. Let's use James's example of compassionate care and giving to those in need, the hungry and the unclothed. Barna research shows that evangelical Christians are nearly four times more likely to give significantly, which is four to eight thousand dollars a year. Four times more likely to give in a significant bracket than the national average. And evangelical Christians are seven times more likely to give in the highest bracket, ten thousand dollars or more. Atheists and agnostics, on the other hand, are more than twice as likely than average to give the least amount of $100 or less to charity. In other words, if you just step back and you look at Christendom, it changes our hearts towards giving. Christians actually do give more 
Praise God. <laughs> the grip of our, you know, fists on our things and our money is loosened by the gospel. And it produces change that you can see. Barna can statistically track it. Christians give sacrificially in more profound ways as well. Practicing Christians are more than twice as likely to adopt and 50% more likely to foster children. And in addition, although the average foster child needs to be moved from their home in less than a year, foster children placed by faith-based organizations stay in their foster home an average of 2.6 years. You see, the gospel changes people's hearts. And the gospel changes people's homes so that they're safer and more stable for children. On average, not every Christian home, not every Christian, but on average, we see the gospel moving in a population for change. Christian husbands are different. Women married to church-going evangelical men compared to women married to men in other major religious traditions or women married to unaffiliated men report the highest levels of happiness. Can you believe that, ladies? Christian women... (laughs) Christian women report the highest levels of happiness. And evangelical Protestant husbands are the least likely to be engaged in abusive behavior. Bradford Wilcox says, the director of National Marriage Project, University of Virginia. It actually does make a difference. Practicing Christianity and being transformed by the gospel changes your marriage, changes your joy, changes how much abuse takes place, changes anger, changes hostility. Sociologist Christopher Ellison says, compared with a woman who never attends religious services, a woman who shares similar demographic characteristics but attends several times a week is roughly 40% less likely to be a victim of domestic violence. And not surprisingly, they also found that men who attend religious services several times are 72% less likely to abuse their female partners than men from comparable background who do not attend church. It makes a difference in really real ways. Does that mean abuse never happens in the church or abuse never happens in a Christian home? No. Sadly, Satan can get his hooks into even Christian marriages, Christian men and Christian women. But Barna can measure this stuff. The Foundation on Marriages can measure this stuff. Christianity makes a difference. The gospel makes a difference. Faith produces works. This is all James was trying to say. If you really have faith, your life will be really different. The gospel changes men, it changes women, it changes marriages. Christian men and women are a combined 40% more likely to be satisfied with their sex lives than the next closest demographic. I mean, the gospel changes every part of our life in all the best ways. Right? Who would have thought? Go to church, improve your sex life. <laughs> Amen, indeed. That's not a small number. 40% more likely to be satisfied than the next closest demographic. And people make fun of Christians about their sex life. It's weird. <laughs> Christian wives are different. Christian teenagers are different. Without much question, Christian teenagers who are in our school system 
actually have to exhibit the greatest faith to be different in the most difficult circumstances. Our teenagers have the hardest job of any of us to be different, to allow their faith to show in the most difficult circumstances. If you see a church-going, Bible-reading, ministry-serving teenager today after service, do more than tell them you are praying for them. Take them out for lunch, buy their school supplies, do something for them. Be a spiritual aunt or uncle, because they need to know that you've got their back. Christian cops are different. Christian teachers are different. Christian car salesmen are different. Christian lawyers, Christian construction workers, Christian public servants, Christian musicians, Christian artists, Christian therapists, Christian grocers, Christian software engineers. They're all different because Christianity, faith, the gospel changes us. Or so James says, they should be different than our non-Christian counterparts. If we have faith, it will be proven by how we work at everything that we do. And on the spiritual side of things, Christians do reject sin. We restrain our selfishness. We make self-sacrificing choices. We put God and others ahead of ourselves in the priority of our decisions. We proclaim the glory of God. We celebrate the hope of Jesus. We diminish so that he might increase. That's very different. Do you see the rest of the world doing any of those things? Very few of them. So Christians are different. The gospel does change us. I say this to encourage you that we should see these differences and we should celebrate these differences and we should rejoice in these differences that our marriages and our relationships and ourselves are different and we can produce good works of compassion and love and it makes a real difference. The Christian life is marked by these works if their faith is genuine. That's James's catch. Because if our actions look identical to the world, if, if me as an individual, if you ask me something and my answer is exactly the same as you'd get from your agnostic neighbor or your atheist coworker, if, if there's trouble in, 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 a, in my marriage and I respond to that trouble in my marriage the exact same way my unsaved neighbor would react to it, if I am under pressure or I face adversity and I face it and respond to it exactly the same as a non-believer, then that's what James is wondering. Where is the works of your faith? It should be different. And sometimes there's parts of our life that, you know, we've trusted in Jesus and it's authentic. We really have trusted in Jesus and all of our hope for heaven is in him alone. It's not in our works. We've bought into Paul. Right? Paul gave us the starting point. It's our works. It's not our works. It's not our works that save us. It's Jesus that saves us. And we've trusted that. And we've denied our sin. And we reject our sin. But sometimes there's parts of our life that aren't yet changed. And so there might be some changes over here, but they're not changed over here. And what we need to do is we need to let the gospel into all of our life. So that we're not just different at church. That's the first part. That's the, where it's easy to change when you're among friends. Right? So the gospel might start with changing our heart that we come to church and we're at church and we serve in ministry and we're, you know, we change our attitude with other Christians. That's a good start. But maybe we're not so different at work. Maybe at work the gospel hasn't quite gotten in there to produce works yet. Maybe at home even. Maybe in our marriage. Maybe in our marriage, maybe at work. Maybe in the area of money. Maybe in the area of things. Maybe in our politics. I don't know. Somewhere in your life the gospel has not started to produce works. And what James would say is, you need to think about that. 
Because if your faith is genuine, it will change how you work. It will change what you do. And the genuine gospel is a transforming gospel. Trusting completely in Jesus brings us the promise of the Spirit who is at work to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Yes, it might be changed. Yes, we might not see it except over years. But embrace the transformation. Do not deny it. Don't resist it. And wherever you need to put the old flesh to death, put it to death. And man, there's so much more to talk about in James's argument here, but I'm going to leave that. Just know, James's argument is simple. Faith that saves is never alone. It's accompanied by work. So yes, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It comes with transformation. It comes with change. It comes with compassion. It comes with love. And so we can all do our own test here. We can all do our own faith examination. When you say you believe in Jesus Christ, is it producing change in your life? Because that's what the gospel has the power to do, and statistically, we can see that it does. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Faith Inspector James. We thank you that he taps all the walls and pokes at the joists, and he looks for rot, and he looks for cracks, and he looks for weaknesses. And he's doing the same thing by your Holy Spirit right now in our hearts, where we need to look at our life as a whole and celebrate and rejoice and be assured by the change that we have seen in the gospel. When it came along in our life and we put away old habits and we put away old things and we found new love and new compassion, we embrace that and are assured by that. But at the very same time, that very same person who's thrilled by the change of the gospel may have this other part of their life that remains unchanged. And the gospel hasn't quite broken in there yet, or they have been guarding it and hedging it off and saying, yeah, you can change lots of these things out here, God, but don't change that because I really like my money. I really like my security. I really like where I live. I really like my job. I really want to just stay here, so don't change me there. And so, Lord, help us in our hearts to open up all aspects of our life to your transforming gospel change because it's ultimately for our good and your glory that we are transformed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.